Howard Cox. London Matters and Needs Reform. The official podcast of the Reform UK candidate for Mayor of London. And this is your opportunity to put your questions to Howard Cox. Uh, So let's get to the first question, Howard. It's Nick in Bromley who says, Howard, good to see you are standing for mayor. Are the government finally taking your pump watch campaign seriously? Because there's been some movement here, Howard. Absolutely. I'm very proud to say that pump watch is a real a real entity, a real consumer price regulatory project. The government have listened and they're acting and they're introducing it. And they've got 12 of the big oil companies and all of the big four supermarkets to actually buy into it. And what it's about is simply that they have to supply real-time data of price changes within 30 minutes of them happening. That's wholesale and retail. I mean, it's still a voluntary system, but at least it gives us a chance. And I've been campaigning for eight years on this particular project, uh, calling for it. And, and, and they're calling it Pump Watch. Uh, and I'm glad to say that because I, I wish I trademarked that because I made a lot of money out of it by now. That's very true. In terms of actually whether it is, it is a voluntary scheme uh, at the moment, if they don't adhere to it and they don't give honest, fair and transparent pricing in the market and true competition, it will move over to mandatory legislation and watch this space. Just to explain, Howard, how, how, for those who don't know then, how does it work? I drive onto the forecourt. Um, what what do I see that I'm not seeing now? Well, what you, you won't see any difference in terms of what prices are. Or, or, the prices will be different, yes, but you won't see it in terms of a tangible thing. You need to go use an app, which we're talking about putting together. There are apps already. Petrolprices.com is one, which is a very good app, but that relies on data coming from people supplying the information of their corner garage. But this one, the government are actually, it's mandatory for these companies to actually supply the prices of petrol and diesel within 30 minutes of them changing it. Now, I I say again, this is a voluntary process, so we're relying on them doing it, but it is actual data, not actually reported data. So hopefully the government think that there'll be a 3P drop as soon as this is introduced and run up and running per litre, which is good news. Uh, I still think that petrol and diesel is something like 5 to 10p higher than it should be, because before the pandemic, for example, profit per litre was around about 8 to 10p per litre. It is now 20p per litre, more than double. So those are the sorts of things. And, And Go figure, why are they doing this? So hopefully this system will work. And um, uh, to be fair to the fuel supply chain, who I've really remorsely got at for the last 15 years, they are buying into this and the government are congratulating me for actually uh, recommending it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Just I mean, just a point on the campaigning side of this. Uh, I mean, I, I think I first interviewed you probably 15 years ago or something on this very point. Yes. I mean, this has almost defined this part of your life. You've relentlessly been on top of this one and agitating for change. Politicians you've met from all sides, senior politicians as well, you've spent time with. Just tell us a little bit then about that campaigning side, because this is the Mayor of London race you're a part of, but you're no stranger to a campaign. Absolutely right. And I think I've said to certain people, I'm I'm not very comfortable, you know, promoting myself, but I can honestly say that I'm the only candidate in the, that so far in the London mayoral campaign coming up on uh, the voting in May the 2nd that has actually achieved anything tangible for real people. I've been running Fairfield UK. We've had a freezing fuel duty since 2011 uh, to date. We've got a budget coming up in six weeks and I hopefully that's continued the freeze, but I'm calling for a cut. 
But if it wasn't for me, pump prices uh, all across the country and in London would have been about something like 40 or 50p more than they are now per litre. And when you're talking about filling up an average family car, that's an extra £20 every time you fill up. That's what yeah. would have happened if it wasn't for Fairfuel UK. And the pump watch idea is it's not only the tax side of things, fuel duty, there's also the opportunistic profiteering in the fuel supply chain we've been seeing for years. Everyone knows about when they drive down the road, they go to one BP carriage, they go to the next one about four or five miles away, and it's a, it could be six or p difference. Why? Mm. Um, and those are the sorts of things. And and when pump oil goes up, we all know, you've heard of the phrase, petrol and diesel, the prices of the pumps go up like a rocket and come down like a feather when oil comes down, and they don't come down by the right amount. Everyone knows yeah. that actually the pricing of petrol and diesel is a complete and utter conundrum, which is exclusive to the knowledge of the fuel supply chain, because I've never been able to work out how it's priced, and I've been doing this for 15 years. But yes, <laughs> yeah, to put it bluntly, you know, we are moving and we're trying to, you know, the, the, the first person or first target all from the Treasury and also the fuel supply chain are drivers. There are 37 million drivers in this country, and they're always the first port of call to try and get cash out of. And that's what I've been fighting against. Here's a question from Michael in Highbury. How do you intend to make the tubes safer? How nighttime in London is not a good place to be in some areas. Well, we know about rising crime. The tube specifically, any plans to tackle that particular area? Absolutely. I, I want, again, it, it works at both at roadside level, uh, street level, etc. We should have more visible policing. I don't think I've ever seen a transport police person walking stations or walking the platforms. I'd love people to contact me if they see that. I don't think it's ever happened. So when I'm talking about tripling the number of bobbies on the beat, I'm going to do the same on the tube. And it's vital we do that. And also better cameras and access points uh, where you can actually immediately press a button if you feel endangered. All those sorts mm. of things we're going to go for. Obviously, there's some costs involved with this, but hopefully I can convince the government this is it for our capital city. They should put some more money into that. Uh, here's a question from Jenny who says, I saw that Sadiq Khan has been accused of wasting £123 million of taxpayers' cash on mis." place priorities during his time in City Hall. Will you guarantee there will be no silly vanity projects under your watch? Uh, yeah, I saw this story too. Apparently he has been splashing the cash somewhere. I saw it too and I've known about it for some time and can I assure everyone listening to this podcast that I guarantee there'll be no vanity projects. I'm not a politician. I'm only here to actually get London moving again and protecting our citizens. It's as simple as that. We're not having any vanity projects. There's no no gimmicks whatsoever. Even the fireworks in New Year, that won't be fireworks anymore because it, it will be something along the lines of lasers and multimedia displays, etc. We are not wasting money on projects that absolutely have nothing to do with running of London. Yeah, how do you spend 123 million quid? I mean, I'm not suggesting you don't spend money as the mayor, of course you do, but 123 million on what is being called misplaced priorities does sound like a, almost a criminal amount of money. Well, day one, you know, sitting in the office, I'm going to be calling in all people that are a cost centre right across, and that's not just the big one, which is TFL, but right the way down to projects that we're handing out money to particular projects like diversity projects, etc., gender projects, all those sort of things. I'm going to be looking at those and saying, what are we getting back for the citizens of London? That is what I'm going to be looking at. And watch this space, because probably about 40 or 50% of them would we go on the first day. Uh, here's one from Luke in Hackney. You've sort of touched on some of this, but Luke says, uh, is it right that being the mayor puts you in charge of policing? If so, how can you reduce crime? Yes, it was. I can't remember the exact year it came in, but the, the thing called a police and crime commissioner came about across the country and by uh, police region. Uh, I actually was the campaign manager 
for the first police and crime commissioner in Kent. We won. Uh, we beat the Tory group there uh, up against us. And um, yes, the police and crime commissioner's responsibility is to actually set the strategy for the police and also discuss spending and budgets. Totally not responsible for any operational, and quite rightly, I shouldn't be. I've got no idea about operational aspects of policing. But I do understand the common sense of actually what should be policed properly. And so I will be bossing the head of the police in the, the Metropolitan Police. And if he doesn't perform and if he doesn't reduce crime to meeting our strategy to reduce crime, he will go or she. There is a real perception, isn't there? Um, I was reminded of this by Alex Phillips, former MEP, of course, yes. um, who was uh, attacked in the street just a, a week or so ago. Somebody tried to grab her phone, didn't succeed, but she was a little bruised and clearly very disturbed by this. Those kind of incidents are happening by the minute. Uh, they rarely get reported because people think, well, look, you know, even if the phone was stolen, I'm never going to get it back. It becomes an issue with the insurance company more than it does with the police. There is a, almost a lack of faith that people have. And I think certainly in the capital where certain crimes are not worth reporting because they don't trust the system. You're absolutely right. I spoke to Alex about that because she's a good friend and and she was shaken up. It's totally out of order. And believe it or not, four or five days before that, I was sort of semi-mugged. Coming from the underground in Charing Cross to the overground area, I was carrying my laptop on my shoulder and this guy ran up to try and actually grab hold of my bag. I managed to hold on to it. And I was fortunately helped by another young lad actually who helped me. And he sort of chased after after the guy but we didn't bother reporting I did go to the uh, someone to try and find and there's a the point there was no transport police around whatsoever and we've got to have this approach as you know I want to introduce police access points in various private 24-hour uh, outlets like yeah. uh, that sort of thing like, like McDonald's and supermarkets I think a police access point should be on every entrance to every station as well so we can yeah. you know that would help people walking just down the street but you know this is a scary time and I understand there was a stabbing in Bexley yesterday too yeah and people are genuinely worried. So are we talking about more police officers under your watch? I want to triple the number of bobbies on the beat, hopefully more. And I think I've said this before. At any one time, only 5 to 10% of the bobbies who should be on the beat are on the beat. They are Most of them are actually doing bureaucratic stuff, paperwork, and, and chasing people on the internet rather than actually chasing criminals on the street and gathering intelligence on the street. The money itself you know, is going to be, we've got to discuss how much it's going to cost, but most of it can be just based around redeployment. Here's a question from Lisa who says, London has always been the financial capital of Europe, but I feel the crown is slipping. Can you ensure the capital remains a global business powerhouse. Yeah, this is not talked about a lot, but I couldn't agree more. One of my things that I feel strongly about is actually saying London's the place to do business. And I will be encouraging, and the only time I will go by economy class to other countries around the world is to promote London. I won't have a private jet. I won't go first class. I'm going to go and see people and put a presentation together and say why London is the best place for you to invest in. And that includes the financial aspects as well. And there is a sense that, and I know it depends on where people sit politically, some people obviously will blame Brexit because Brexit is the cause of everything from the Great Plague to the fact that, <laughs> I don't know, petrol prices and goodness knows what, everything is down to that, as you as you know, Howard. Um, and I, I noticed that that contingent are very quick to say London in particular should be or was this uh, globally respected financial hub, and it is no longer. That perception among some is there. 
you will address that. Absolutely will do. I mean, we heard everyone was saying doom and gloom that the whole of the city of London was going to pack their bags and go to Frankfurt. Uh, or, yeah. or, or, and we heard that, but it hasn't happened because no. London, and don't forget, we have the lucky situation. We speak English. That is the global language of finance. So to put it bluntly, uh, you know, we have a lot of things in our favour. We just got to actually tell people we're still here. And here's a final one, interesting one from Phil, who says, not sure if you're into football, Howard, but as mayor, which club will you visit first? Chelsea, Fulham, Arsenal or Spurs? But there were the serious points. Says, uh, and should London taxpayers foot the bill for policing matches? It currently costs the Met about seven million quid a year. Yeah. Uh, let's take the first point, first of all. Well, well, I'm a Crystal Palace fan, so you didn't mention them in your four. I was about to say, there are, are other clubs. You missed out Charlton, Millwall, Millwall um, and as you yeah. say, uh, the mighty Crystal Palace. But uh, <laughs> So it might be Palace you visit first. I, I, I probably will do. I, I, I'm not a great football fan. I'm much more of a rugby, cricket and a golfing sort of follower. But um, my father, back in 1959, took me to uh, Selhurst Park. and uh, I've been several times there, but I'm not an avid supporter. But they're always the first result I look for, uh, simply yeah. because of the emotional side of things but in answer to your question about the policing the cost of policing these things we've got to sit down and work out with these clubs actually you know what they can actually supply because the amount of money especially in the premier league you know we're talking about when you're paying sort of 50 million pound for a player why can't we actually spend you know 40 million on the player and put 10 million into actually protecting the grounds and the people that are paying their wages so yes i will be looking at that and i'll hopefully we'll be able to reduce the cost it does seem extraordinary that some of these clubs are owned by the richest people on the planet Yes. Billionaires and shakes and various plutocrats and goodness knows who else. And yet the taxpayer pays for the old bill to show up and police the match. Well, welcome to the world of actually the taxpayer, you know, always, you know, underwriting everything that we do at the moment. And a lot of these are sort of, as we spoke about earlier, vanity type projects and things that actually yep. should be financed by the very people that run those vanity projects. Thank you for that question, Phil. And of course, if you have questions, uh, send them through to Howard on social media at Howard C. Cox. Send through whatever question you like and we'll get through as many as we can on subsequent episodes. We are back in a week's time for episode three of this official Howard Cox podcast. What is the next seven days looking like for you, Howard? Well, I've probably got about five different presentations I'm doing at various meetings around London to uh, the great and the good of locality councillors and also obviously Reform UK supporters. Um, we've got a lot of things going on in terms of actually fundraising. It doesn't come cheap running a campaign, especially I don't have the machinery of the Tory and Labour Party that they have. And uh, so uh, obviously financing is so important. So any donations are welcome. Please go to the Reform UK site to do that. But my week is really meeting with people, grassroots people. I'm also meeting with people like uh, who are actually experts regarding stopping knife crime, that sort of thing, and also some housing experts I'm meeting in the next week. So, yes, I'm pretty busy, but it's something like 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week at the moment that I'm actually concentrating on this. There it is. We will speak on the next episode, Howard. Have a great week. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure as always. And don't forget, of course, to follow this podcast so that you get each episode automatically. And as I mentioned, follow Howard on social media at Howard C. Cox and get those questions through ready for the next episode.